0: Are younger, you are welcome to go to the service that's been prepared downstairs for you. I'd like to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning, again, to Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. As we uh, come this morning to consider the subject of last things, we're going to be uh, looking at coming of Jesus Christ and the establishment of his kingdom. And I just want to remind you where we are and where we're going because we're coming down to the the end of the first part of this series in Genesis. Remember that I told you that it was my conviction that every major doctrine in the scripture has its root, its origin in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. And I think uh, we've demonstrated that. Pretty adequately, we're down to the doctrine of last things that theologians call eschatology. And, uh, after this message, which is probably going to, well, it is going to take two weeks. Um, I can go two or three weeks on a one page outline and I have a two page outline. So we're, we're definitely going to be on this for a couple weeks. But, um, as, uh, we consider this subject this morning, the, the coming kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, then the, the last doctrine that I think is rooted back there that uh, we need to touch on. There may be others, but at least that's on uh, my radar and outline is the doctrine of Satanology, demonology, the, the presence and uh, personality of evil in the world. I wish we didn't have to deal with that at all, but we do have to deal with it on a daily basis, so we have to deal with it. In the scriptural sense, we have to take a look at it. And when we finish with those, um, then that will uh, more or less complete our study and overview of the various doctrines of the scripture that are found in these early chapters. You remember that I told you that my purpose in doing this was to underscore the reason. Why it is important for us to believe Genesis 1, 2, and 3 as literally true. As actually being prescriptive of how God made the universe and made the world just exactly the way the Bible says He did in these opening chapters. Because if this is merely an allegory, if it's merely a fable, if it's just a story trying to relate to us some themes, then all of the doctrines that we have been studying uh, basically crumble. If the words themselves, the phrases, the clauses, the sentences, are not absolutely true, all of the symbolism, all of the connection... All of the tie-in with the various and sundry doctrines just kind of falls apart. And what many people don't realize is, particularly those who want to embrace evolution and just kind of say, God did it, you know, uh, fail to see how that completely destroys the whole message of the gospel and and undermines the, the moral culpability for sin and, and just negates, really, the rest of Scripture. So, once we've taken a look at these doctrines that we're looking at, then part two is, we're going to come back a little later, and we're going to look at the literal truths of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 from the cosmological or cosmogony sense. Does the, Do the facts of the universe and the facts of the world as we know it does the data support a literal understanding of the biblical revelation? And I think that uh, when we're done, you're going to find that it does. And kind of in preparation for that, I want to remind you that next Sunday afternoon, uh, we're going to be seeing the movie uh, that Ben Stein made called Expelled, where he is going to take us on a tour of some of the uh, major thinkers in the realm of biological Uh, development and cosmology and all of that and kind of make the rounds physicists and uh, astrophysicists and whatever and interview them and uh, basically look at how people who believe in intelligent design, people who believe in God, who believe in creation, are being ridiculed and essentially ousted from the scientific community as uh, having ideas that are not consistent with good science. And, you know, as we, as we see that movie, I think you're going to see part of the problem. But you may be interested to know that there is actively a conversation going on within the scientific community. There was an article in Scientific American uh, a few months uh, earlier this uh, past year, and uh, I saw an email yesterday from the Brian Call that kind of supported this. There is an active conversation going on, in the scientific community that people who believe in intelligent design should be barred from any position in the sciences or in academia because they must be stupid, and therefore they cannot be scientists. And um, that's, uh, that's not just people blowing smoke. There is a serious discussion going on that uh, people who are so foolish is to believe that there was actually a design to this world should be banned from the practice of the sciences or from teaching uh, in academic institutions because um, they must not get it. And so this is kind of what we're facing. And uh, that's part part of my purpose is giving you, first of all, a biblical understanding of why Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are important. Our faith, friends, really rest on the foundation of these chapters. If these chapters are not true, then our faith crumbles. It's a lie. The whole thing disintegrates. So it's important. But more than that, we don't just have our head in the sand. We're not just believing because we're, we're stupid religious fanatics. We believe the Bible's true. But once our eyes have been opened by the truth of the gospel message of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit has opened our blinded eyes, and we look at the data with fresh vision, we will find that what is out there supports what is in here. Because truth is all there is to find. And in the end, when we run it to ground, God is going to be there at the end of the telescope or the end of the microscope or. The end of our scripture study. He's going to be there in all cases because he's all there is to find. It is true and he is the truth. So having said that, uh, let's uh, go to our topic for this morning. Looking at the doctrine of last things from the first things. Redemption and restoration. I want to submit to you this morning that what we see in Revelation is forecast in Genesis. You read the first three chapters of the Bible, and they sound strangely similar to the last three chapters of the Bible. You read the message of the Millennial Kingdom and the truths about the Millennial Kingdom, and they sound an awful lot like creation before the fall. And as we study Genesis, we see that there's something going on there that God is bringing back as we move toward the end of time. And, and then that makes us wonder, well, what's this whole thing about? Is, is there a process to history? Is there a direction that God is moving in order to recover and restore what has been lost? And I think there is. I think Genesis speaks very clearly to the doctrine of last things. And one of the things that, that is interesting to me, is many evangelicals, and, and they're legitimate evangelicals. They believe in the, the inerrancy of Scripture. They believe in the virgin birth. They believe in the deity of Christ. They believe in the blood atonement. They believe in His bodily resurrection. They believe all of these essential core truths of the gospel message. But they deny that there's going to be a literal thousand-year reign of Christ. They are what eschatologists refer to as amillennialists. There's going to be no millennium. That's all figurative. That's all metaphorical. That is uh, simply intended to to give us an idea uh, of of, uh, what God is like. But really, the way it's all going to end is Jesus is going to come back. There's going to be a judgment. It's all going to be over. The new heaven and the new earth are going to appear, and it's a done deal. And the reason that they feel that way is when they look at the statements made about the millennial kingdom, (laughs) they think to themselves... This can't possibly be literally true. Lions are not going to eat straw like oxen. And wolves and lambs are not going to lay down together in the pasture. And children are not going to play with cobras. I mean, this cannot be literally true. But what they fail to see when they take that approach to eschatology is that... Genesis tells us this is how it was in the beginning. That something bad has happened in this world that has disrupted God's original design. And that in the millennial kingdom, when our king of kings is reigning and ruling, he is going to restore what was lost. And there's going to be a recovery of a paradise similar to Eden. And there's no reason to discount the literal truth of a thousand-year reign of Christ that is characterized by some pretty unusual things. If, in fact, we go back and look at Genesis and find how they relate together. My perspective this morning as we look at the subject is that in order to understand this this overall direction, in order to understand this grand scheme of things, we need to have a good handle on the plan and purposes of God from the very beginning. Personal salvation is the best understood message and the obvious introduction to the will and plan of God. What do I mean by that? Most people never get beyond this first stage of comprehending God's plan. They hear the gospel message. It's related to them on a personal level. They're in a meeting or a friend is sharing Christ with them. And the Holy Spirit begins to work in their heart and they realize, I am a sinner. I need salvation. I need Jesus Christ. I need forgiveness. I need my life fixed. I need to be straightened out. I want eternal life. I do not want to go to hell. I don't want to die without hope in in Christ. And so there is a personal commitment made to Jesus Christ. And a person comes into a saving knowledge of him. And they and John says, I'm writing to you little children because you have come to know the Father. And that's exactly what happens in the new birth. A person comes alive spiritually and they are introduced to God the Father and they have a personal connection with God and they are saved and they know they're going to heaven now. They know they have eternal life. And for many, many people, that's as far as their faith ever gets. That's all they ever see. God saved me. God redeemed me. I have eternal life. And as far as they're concerned, and you may be one among them here this morning, the basic purpose and reason why God is there is to help you deal with the rest of your life. Now that I'm saved, I can turn to God when I need money. I can turn to God when I'm sick. I can turn to God when I need this or when I need that. God is there to help me out. It's kind of like the Santa Claus approach to God. You know, I can just sit on his lap and tell him what I want for Christmas, and he's going to take care of me. Now, it's not that that's not true. Well, that's not true. Actually, what I just said is not quite true. But, but it's not that God is not interested in me as a person. But many people never get beyond that stage when they look at things from a totally, may I say, egotistical or self-centered perspective. God saved me and now he's up there for me. But that's only the introduction. Because as you grow and mature if you're open to enlightenment of the message of the whole message of the gospel, you realize that God not only saved you, but that Jesus Christ died for the church. You individually are not the bride of Christ. The whole church is the bride of Christ. It's not just about me. There's something else going on here. There's a bigger picture. Christ is interested in people being a part of His bride from every tongue and tribe and nation. And when we come to the marriage supper of the Lamb, as we talk about last things and we think about the the return of Jesus Christ and we think about the marriage supper of the Lamb where we're going to celebrate our union in the flesh, in resurrected, glorified flesh forever, Jesus tells us in the Revelation that at that table there will be people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation because he is all about bringing back to himself lost people from all over the world. He's building a family. God is concerned about men and women who do not know him who live on every continent, in every country, who have all different kinds of skin color, who speak all different kinds of languages and dialects, God loves them all. And He wants them all to be a part of that. And when when we wake up to that bigger picture, we begin to mature, we begin to realize that there is a greater purpose, there is a greater cause than just me. That eternal life, and the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is something worth giving my life to. That, that reaching across the world to touch some people group that has never heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ is worth the investment, whatever the cost. It's worth persecution. It's worth living for. It's worth dying for. It's a cause that is bigger than I am. It's worthy of the investment of my time. It's worthy of my prayer uh, intercession and support. It's worthy of the investment of my money. It's worthy of the investment of my life. It's a big cause because God has in His heart a vision of people all over the globe coming to faith in Jesus Christ and living forever with Him in eternity. And so... When our eyes kind of start being open, we begin to see that there's much more to this than just me coming back to faith in God. There, there's a bigger agenda. And Jesus says to, to his disciples, wait in Jerusalem until you've received a power from on high. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, then you will be witnesses for me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. But, there's a bigger picture even than that. Is it only about getting people saved and getting them into the family of God? Is that what this whole thing is about? Or is there still yet more to the story? And what I want us to understand this morning as we go to Genesis to understand the return of Christ, and the message of last things, is that God has been on a quest from day one in human history, taking us back to the fulfillment of His original purposes, and the church is a vital part of that. But the church is the ultimate fulfillment of a mission to recover what was lost in Adam and to restore the glory of God in human beings and on this planet in order to destroy the works of the devil and to recover God's original purpose to have a race of people who love Him with all their heart and mind and soul and strength and who obey Him and follow Him and worship Him and who love each other and who populate a world that is filled with His glory. That was a part of the original design and God is going back to that. So, as we grow up and as we come closer to the heart of God, we see that it's not just about me. And then we see that it's not even just about the church, but it's about destroying the works of the devil. It's about recovering what was lost. It's about establishing a kingdom that once again ushers in the presence of God in the lives of people and reigns upon this earth in His glory. So, how does that affect us today? Well, we are in a battle commonly known as spiritual warfare. And it is perhaps the least understood but most important truth in our daily walk with Christ as joint heirs with Him in the kingdom. Now, why do I say that it is Perhaps the most important truth. Aren't there not more important truths than spiritual warfare? Well, yes, if you're going to try to rank what's important. The deity of Christ is very important. His blood atonement is very important. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Coming to faith in Him is very important but assuming the inerrancy of Scripture and the deity of Christ and and all of those essential truths that are part of the gospel message, having come to faith in Jesus Christ, one of the most important things for you and for me to understand is that we are entering into a battle called spiritual warfare that is being waged on a daily basis. It's being waged over territories and people groups. It's being waged against the church. And it's being waged, this battle, this spiritual battle, is being waged against you and me personally. And that's what we're dealing with on a daily basis. The Apostle Paul said, we are not wrestling against flesh and blood. Our struggle is not about... The, the the natural things out there in life we are fighting with principalities and powers and spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realm and everything in a sense is fair game we in the west almost have blinders on to this reality but the bible says that we are facing we are in a spiritual battle that is a kind of warfare that covers every aspect of our lives. And I think many times we go through life as if the things that are happening to us are just, oh, well, this is just kind of natural stuff. You know, uh, sickness and, and family problems and financial problems and personal problems.